scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 43, where the Holy Scriptures read. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Harvest time, we will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests In its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without parables. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burnt with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we begin today? Father, we ask that these parables would not be a mystery to us that with the eyes of faith that we would hear and understand. So we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, which come only by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Father, help us to see this truth in a new way, in a way that changes our affections, which then motivates our desires and our actions to go out into a world and live boldly as Christians, declaring the risen name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the resurrection that we celebrated last week. We long for and look forward to the new life that is coming to all of the sons and daughters of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Big changes often start quite small. For example, Kurt Christensen, he was a carpenter in Denmark who was struggling to make ends meet during the Great Depression. And then, to make matters worse, his wife suddenly died, which forced him to be the sole caretaker of his children. 
And so he had never to be a good caretaker, a good father. And so out of that, he decided to make his kids some toys. And one of those toys that he made was a toy duck. And his kids loved that toy duck so much that he then decided to create a manufacturing plant to create said toy ducks for other children. And it went quite well for a while. Until one day when his kids were playing with some fire and wood shavings, which then let light to the factory and burnt the thing to the ground, which left him back in a destitute state without any income whatsoever. So he started over again. He then began making little models of houses, vehicles, and other small toys that also grew in popularity. And then they grew in even more popularity when he decided to make them plastic. And today we have the kingdom of Lego. Another example of big things starting small happened on the night of September 26th, 1983. Hey, that's a good year. That's when I was born. I just realized that. When the Soviet orbital missile early warning system, there's a mouthful, so Soviet orbital missile early warning system, say that 10 times fast, reported a single intercontinental ballistic missile that had been launched from the United States. Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, who was on duty during the incident, saw this warning, but he ignored it. He ignored it because he concluded that it was a false alarm. Part of his reasoning was that the system that they had just implemented was so brand new and it was known to have malfunctioned before, and so he didn't think it was a legitimate nuclear attack from the United States. He also concluded that if it had been a nuclear attack from the United States, it wouldn't just have one missile launched. There would be thousands of simultaneous launches and not just the single one. However, later on, the system then went on to report four more ICBM. That's a lot easier to say. ICBM launches headed towards the Soviet Union. But again, Petrov dismissed these reports to be false, and thankfully he did because they were false. And because of this small decision made by this man, today we have the massive consequences of being able to be alive and live in a non-post-nuclear world, which is pretty nice. And all because of that small decision that started there. Another example of big things starting small is from 1914 when the Black Hand Terrorist Group had continued to be unsuccessful in their attempts to assassinate the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. And if you know your history, you know where this is going. But in their attempts, they failed. And in one of these attempts, it failed because the grenade that was thrown at the Archduke's car missed and hit another car. It didn't kill the person in it, but it missed. And so, upon finding this out, the Archduke, he set out to visit the injured person in the hospital. And so he did. He set out with his driver and went, began driving towards the hospital. And meanwhile, while he was headed towards the hospital, one of the men who had been assigned to assassinate the Archduke, a man named Gavrilo Princip, he got hungry. And so he stopped at the corner of the street to pick up a sandwich. And as he was at the corner of the street, he saw the car of the Archduke driving by. He pulled out his weapon and he assassinated the Archduke right then and there, which plunged the world into a little war called World War I, which led to millions of lives being lost. And we could say all because of a sandwich. So sometimes little things lead to big things. One last example comes from our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus tells us about the nature of his kingdom. And how does that kingdom begin? 
Small. How small? A baby in Bethlehem. It's quite small. The babe born in Bethlehem, though it began small there, would one day lead to a kingdom that will cover the entire world, as far as the east is from the west. That's what Christ's rule is going to be. Not just a spiritual rule over our hearts, surely that is part of it, but a physical rule where Christ returns and he rules and reigns, where the psalmist says he makes his enemies his footstool. That's going to happen. But that kingdom didn't come quite how everybody expected, not even close. How did everyone expect that kingdom to come? Like, on, like Normandy. But it didn't, did it? It didn't come with a flash of great power and force. It came subtly, not during the day, but during the night. Not with loud fanfare, but in quiet seclusion. Not on a white war horse, but as we saw a couple weeks ago, on a meek and lowly donkey. Not to rule and reign, though that is coming, but to serve and to save. And yet over and over again, people continually fail to understand this truth. And because they fail to understand it, they miss their opportunity to receive Christ's kingdom in full power and force and live out of that glorious hope. And this is why Jesus moves his ministry, which was teaching pretty directly with the crowds, to speaking in parables. And he did so because they rejected his kingdom offer. He said, the kingdom is in your midst. It's here. Accept it. And they refused to. And so because of this, the kingdom was postponed and would now grow spiritually, not physically, as kingdom citizens become members of this kingdom by faith. And so here's the thing. If we fail to understand that truth, we're going to be hopeless. We're absolutely going to be hopeless. We're going to be constantly looking around and saying, God, what's going on here? Where are you at? Things look dark. It doesn't look very promising. But the the thing is, it's actually not dark. Not at all. Because the kingdom, though it starts small, will one day, very soon, Lord willing, show up powerfully with the force of a thousand burning suns. That's what's coming. That's what we're looking and longing forward to. So in the meantime, we must have kingdom hope, and we can have kingdom hope by recognizing three things. Kingdom hope recognizes the corruption of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, and then third, the triumph of the kingdom. Let's look at that first one. When it comes to understanding the parables in this passage, we have some extremely, extremely difficult things to figure out this morning, all right? For example, with the parable of the weeds, are we supposed to ignore weeds in the church or are we supposed to root them out as Matthew 18 suggests? With the mustard seed, here's the question. Is that a good tree full of good birds Or is it a bad tree full of agents of Satan? Which, if you remember back to the first part of Matthew, that's what birds represented. They came, they swooped in, and they stole the gospel seed, right? They stole the kingdom seed. With the leaven, or the yeast, as it spreads slowly throughout all of the dough, does that mean the kingdom will spread slowly and advance in a subtle, we don't really notice it way? Or... Does it mean that the kingdom will be corrupted slowly? Right? Because if you think about leaven in the Bible, every example, but I think one, is a negative example. Leaven always symbolizes rot. It symbolizes decay, spiritual decay especially. So this is our dilemma. 
And to make matters worse, theologians are about as divided on all of this as our American politics. So they were not much help either this week because this is a very hotly debated passage. It's a difficult passage. And so now we see why the book of Revelation is so important for our interpretive decision that we make here. It absolutely is. The way we understand Revelation affects how we understand Jesus' teaching here on the kingdom. Is the kingdom spiritual? Is the kingdom physical? Is it both? How does the kingdom come? Slowly and surely or suddenly with great force? These are very important questions. And so this is why, church, we can't just draw a question mark on the book of Revelation and be like, ha, I just know Jesus wins. That's all. I, that's my eschatology. That's my end times view. Jesus wins. That's all I need to know. No, you need to know more than that. We need to know more than that because if we don't understand Revelation, we're going to miss so many passages in Scripture, including the Gospels, where we cannot make sense of them. Now, our view of Revelation matters. It affects how we understand Jesus' teaching. It affects even how we live. And so if you're a senior here who hasn't been a part of the Revelation study, then giddy up and get on that. And if you're not a senior, then you'll just have to sit in the dark until you're 55 years old. So. But actually, there is a lot of material on this that is well worth the read, that is worth investing into if you're still struggling to figure out your views of the book of Revelation. So, with all that said... Uh, I'm going to be straight up with everybody this morning. Um, When it comes to some of those questions, if not most of them, like the yeast being good or bad, or the birds being good or bad, you know, how to interpret them, I concluded after a long week of study, I don't know. (laughs) I don't. Because here's the problem. For one, Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't interpret the parables sometimes. He just kind of leaves. It's like, here's what it is. And I'm like, I don't know what it means. So the second reason is there's really good arguments on both sides that are biblically true, but they may not be true of this text, right? You see how that works? Because sometimes, you know, we don't want to take passages out of context and we're like, hey, here's a true thing about the Bible. God loves people, but the passage isn't saying that. We want to interpret a passage as it's meant to be understood. But thankfully, if we get that wrong today, we have the true biblical principle, so we're not jumping into heresy at least. So that's, that's a comfort at least there. And so there's good arguments for each on both sides, which all fit within my theological position. Now, there's things outside of that theological position that I don't accept, but even within my theological position that I think is biblical, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't hold it, there's debate, there's confusion, there's conversation to be had. All right, the third reason, for anyone who still cares and is still listening, the option, both options, teach biblical truth anyways, regardless of what Jesus' point is, which we just mentioned. So those three reasons we need to be aware of as we approach this, and I think it's okay to approach it how we're going to. So here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to approach it. I'm going to give us both options as we look at the true biblical principles, right? They're true biblical principles, but we're going to look at both options and how they apply. All right, with that said, everybody still with me? Okay, let's look at the parable of the sower, which is actually the easiest one because we actually get an explanation for this one, all right? the explanation for this parable comes down in verses 36 through 43. And so in these verses, Jesus is telling us that the good sower is the son of man. That's him, right? That's a messianic title. The field is the world. Some theologians try to say it's the church, but if you read the parable, it literally says the field is the world. It's not the church because 
That gets really problematic because if it is the church, what do we do with Matthew 18? What do we do with church discipline? We have a contradiction. We might as well go home. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The bad seed is the devil who sowed those bad seeds. The bad seeds is the sons of the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels and the weeds get burnt while the wheat gets saved. And the great harvest has to come. It's going to be separated on that day of judgment. That's what Jesus says that parable means. All right? Seems pretty straightforward, right? Mostly. We just have one or two issues that we're still going to need to work through here to properly understand and apply this parable. First off, we need to ask, why is Jesus telling us this parable? He's telling this parable to us because he wants us to expect corruption on this side of the kingdom. And if we don't expect corruption on this side of the kingdom, we're going to be hopeless. We're going to be constantly disillusioned and dismayed and be like, oh man, this world is so dark. What, you know, that, that politician we voted in was supposed to fix everything. And they didn't. Shocking. Uh, so we have to understand this, so we're going to live without hope. Now, when it comes to these weeds that the bad guys sowed, these weeds are a type of weed called zizanzia, or more specifically, we're going to call them today darnel. That's what they are. It's a type of weed called the darnel weed. And the thing about these weeds is that while they are growing, they look exactly like wheat. Like they're almost impossible to differentiate between the two, right? And so darnel looks just like wheat when they're growing. And here's the thing about it, though. They're not at all like wheat. In fact, where, well, where wheat is like nutritionist for you to eat, darnel is poisonous. It's very, you don't want to eat this stuff, okay? It can lead to severe dizziness, sickness from its narcotic effects. And so while they're growing, you can't tell them apart until the very end when the wheat finally produces its ears, is what, what it's called, which is the part you harvest and you, know, you reap and end up eating. And so you can't tell which is which until the end. So what's Jesus' point with the darnel and the wheat? He's saying, in this world, you're going to have a whole lot of people that look like they are wheat, but in reality, they're not. They're weeds. They're poisonous darnel that absolutely will do you harm. That's his point. To put it bluntly, he's saying, you're going to have a lot of people that look like they are sons and daughters of the kingdom, but in reality, they are actually sons and daughters of hell itself, the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of Satan. And that kingdom, as we know, is hell-bent on destroying the sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven. So this means that when we are out in the world, which Jesus compares to the field, right? It's, the field is the world, not the church. We must not try to root them out. That's what he's saying. Don't try to root them out to make this perfect society where you just don't have to deal with sinners, you know, like you don't have to deal with the sons of the other kingdom. You're going to have to, he's saying. Don't try to rip them up accidentally because his reason is you might pull up some wheat accidentally, and you don't want to do that. Think about this. How on earth could me or you or even all of us together really be able to judge the heart of another person and determine their end, right? That's what we're looking at, the long term of history, right? Because we all start out as Darnells, pretty much. Like, we all look like we're weeds and all that, and then it's the, it's the gospel of salvation that changes us, which causes us to bear the ears, the fruit, right, which is harvested in Christ's coming. So none of us can know just by looking and glancing at a person at one particular snapshot point in their life. And so we shouldn't try to root them out. Absolutely we shouldn't. And so practically we shouldn't go around 
like the Catholic Inquisition did, trying to snuff out these weeds. That's literally what they tried to do. They ignored this passage entirely. That's what the Inquisition did. It tried to hunt down unbelievers, torture them into faith, murder them, etc., to try to purge and have only a crop of wheat. And Jesus says, don't do that until the judgment. Let the Son of Man and his angels do that. You're not qualified. I'm not qualified. And looking back, we see, too, that they actually did rip up some wheat, didn't they? Of course they did. That's why Jesus warns us not to do it. Now, how do we then factor in church discipline into this? Because if you've been around here at all, you know that we firmly believe in Matthew 18. We attempt to apply Matthew 18 on a regular basis uh, because it's vital for a church to be healthy. So does this mean that we just shouldn't do that? That we should never excommunicate an unrepentant sinner from the church? Well, if it does, then we got a contradiction here. But it's not a contradiction. That's not what Jesus is saying, and it's obvious. So here's what he's saying. Verse 38, as we already mentioned, tells us the field is the world. Okay, It's not the church. The church is not the world. They're different. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Okay, So when it comes to the world, we don't lock and load and remove unbelieving weeds from our society. We don't become monks and live in isolation, just trying to make this pure you know, monastery type thing where it's like, no, sinners are getting in here. We're going to be pure. No, why don't we do that? Because what are we? What did Jesus tell us back in the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5? He said, you are salt and you are light, and that prevents decay. You are to be out in the world, but not of the world. Being ambassadors of the kingdom, declaring that the kingdom is coming. It's not here, but it is coming. That's our job. That's our mission. In the church, then, we absolutely do cast out weeds. Once those weeds have proven themselves to be weeds. We don't need anybody going around being weed hunters, okay? That's not what we want in the church. Nobody needs to do that. I had to pull weeds as a kid. I hated it. It's terrible then. It's terrible now. Don't do it in the church. It's going to result in disaster. So how do weeds prove to us that they're weeds? By their poisonous behavior, right? We see the effects of their poisonous behavior. And their poisonous behavior comes from their refusal to repent, Right? Matthew 18. We don't have time to look at it, but it says, if your brother sins, go to them. Confront them of their sin. If they repent, praise God, have a celebration, just like the prodigal son when he came home and they slaughtered the fatted calf and it was a big rejoicing thing. That's how this works. That's how reconciliation looks in the church. Okay? But if they don't, it escalates to the point of eventually standing before the church and saying, I am here today in great heavy heart. Because so-and-so has shown themselves, we can no longer confidently affirm the testimony of their salvation based upon their behavior. And so we are casting them out. As 1 Corinthians says, Paul says, hand them over to Satan so their body might be destroyed, but their spirit might be saved. This doesn't happen in evangelical churches anymore, right? The, the attitude is don't rock the boat. But if we don't rock the boat, you know what's going to happen? Well, that was Minnesotan. Boat. If we don't rock the boat, you know what's going to happen? These Darnells are going to poison us all. And it's going to corrupt the church, and it's going to make us in pain and ineffective. What kind of sin do we address then? The big ones, right? The real big ones. The dark ones. Uh, No, actually, we address those, yes, but we address the small ones too. We absolutely address the small ones. And that means any unrepentant sin. That means if somebody gossips, if somebody slanders, if somebody loses their cool... 
that process, if it doesn't return or end in repentance, ends in excommunication. This is what the scripture clearly teaches. This is not some out and left field opinion on this. This has been church understanding for 2,000 years. And any unrepentant sin, well, what does that mean by any? Well, I looked at the Greek on this, and any means any. Right? That's deep. Now, how do we mesh all that with Matthew 13? Okay? Well, they go together perfectly. We just did mesh them. We're good. They fit together perfectly. We don't cast out, we don't go out into the world and try to make a commune where it's just us without any sinners, but within the church, we wait for the weeds to identify themselves as weeds through their poisonous behavior. All right. When it comes to Christ's kingdom, we must expect poisonous Darnell weeds. And if we don't, you're going to be extremely disillusioned. You're going to show up at a church and you're going to bump into a weed at some time that has not revealed themselves to be a weed, or you're just going to bump into a Christian who's acting like a weed that day. But the point is, if you show up at churches and you expect like this just perfect, you know, pie in the sky, oh, we just love Jesus and there's never problems, you don't understand what the church is about. Not even close. You're going to be constantly disillusioned. Matthew 18, church, that's something we need to be doing regularly for one another. We need to be coming along and, being, and challenging one another, rebuking one another graciously in love, building up one another class, right? We've been talking about that in there. Shameless plug, okay? This is an important part of the church, and if we don't understand that, we will absolutely be disillusioned. We will be disheartened. And so this all fits with the one way we're talking about of viewing the parable and the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, okay? This fits with one interpretive way that we can understand those two parables, okay? And what is that way? They're bad, right? The leaven's bad. The mustard seed, the growth with the birds, that's bad. That's one interpretive option here, okay? The idea behind this, them being bad, is this. The mustard seed, like the kingdom, starts out small, but it eventually grows and grows and grows until it one day morphs into this massive, huge tree that draws all the birds into the field. We could look at Daniel. There's an illustration there. We don't have time for that. But the point is this. If you know what mustard seeds are, right, they don't turn into massive trees. They're like 10 to 12 feet tall. That's it. That's not a massive tree. And so the interpretive understanding of this then is that it starts out good, it grows and grows, and then it eventually morphs into this hideous, beastly tree that has all the birds of hell lining in it, which is actually, I mean, if we look at Christianity today, is that not true? Of course it is. We're surrounded by false teachers almost on every side. We're surrounded by churches that were once gospel-preaching, Bible-affirming, that have now become corrupted and have turned to paganism, basically. False teaching. This is everywhere. And so that is true. It may not be true of what Jesus is saying here, but as we said, the principle is absolutely true. If we interpret this in the negative way, those birds represent the agents of darkness, which would be saying that, Christendom, not Christianity, not true gospel Christianity, has morphed into a hideous beast. So, likewise, the same could be said about the parable of the leaven. Because we mentioned before, leaven in the Bible is pretty much always, but bar one, maybe two, and then the second one, I think it's a facetious comment, the it's almost always used as an illustration about the corrupting effect of sin. It's slow, it's subtle, it creeps in and, and just decays things. Because that's what leaven is. It's, it's a decaying effect. 
It's fermentation, right? And that's why it rises and puffs up. And this is, I mean, I don't know if it's saying this, but this is another thing in the Bible, is being puffed up a good thing. No, look at 1 Corinthians 14. Don't be puffed up. It's a bad thing. Matthew 16, 6, here's what Jesus says about the leaven. He says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then also in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7, he says, Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And the concept there, I mean, Paul's talk, he gets into church discipline here. He's like, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole dough? Get, that, get it out or the whole thing's going to become corrupted. And he's right. Now, there's a whole lot more verses we could look at on leaven here. That's all the time we have for for now. But the point is this. It is a very plausible interpretation of these parables to understand that Jesus is telling us the kingdom isn't going to grow bigger, better, faster, stronger over time like many today tell us, right? We've got people out there telling us that, hey, you know, we're going to build the kingdom here. We're going we're gonna to take over the seven pillars of society. We're going we're gonna to take control of this thing and right the ship, and then Jesus will come back and it will hand him this perfect kingdom we made. Wrong. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen. And so this is why we must understand Revelation properly. What the Bible tells us is that over time, though the church will be effective and the sons and daughters of the kingdom will be saved and found, over time there will be corruption of society. There will be decay of society. You remember what Jesus asked in Luke 18.8? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I'm going to throw in the word even there. Will he even find faith on the earth? Certainly he will, but his point is what? It's going to get darker. It's going to get much more corrupted over time. By the time Jesus comes back, which is hopefully in about five minutes, our world isn't going to be progressing towards righteousness, but unrighteousness. And so you know what? If you're expecting the gospel to produce this world-changing, kingdom, physical building kind of thing where we take over the schools, we take over the media, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there we go. Yeah, it's on. How, how can you not be disappointed right now? Of course you should be, unless you know that this is the path of the kingdom. If you know this is the path of the kingdom, then I like my dad puts it this way. This is a good expression. He said, it's gloriously dark. It is, isn't it? It's gloriously dark. We know what's behind the darkness, and it's the dawn. And that is coming so incredibly soon. Because on the other side of this darkness, on the other side of our, our troubles, lies triumph, which comes to us through the power of God which leads us to our second point here. The kingdom hope recognizes the corruption of the kingdom, and secondly, the power of the kingdom. Talked a few minutes ago about the difference between the Darnell weeds and the wheat. And do you remember what we said the difference between them was? Was it the weeds' determination to just strive and become wheat? No. Uh, Was it self-effort? No. It was being planted by Christ being sown by Christ, not the devil. Which means you don't become wheat through moral effort. 
You don't become wheat through religious practice and observance. It means you don't become wheat through self-effort, moralistic effort of any kind. It's not possible. How do you become wheat? Through the miraculous, gracious, saving work of Jesus Christ, who turns poisonous plants into a great harvest of righteousness. That is a massive change. That's a miraculous change. I can't change who I am. I can't change my DNA like that, my spiritual DNA. I need the grace of God. The power of God is what saves us. And so, yes, we all start out looking exactly the same, looking like fruitless, harvestless, harvestless. Yeah, we make up words. But we look harvestless, but through the kingdom, we grow by its power in righteousness, which will produce a great harvest by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what we looked at last week, right? With the parable of the four soils. Three of those four were unregenerate. And the fourth one, there's different levels of fruit that will be produced, but there is fruit that's produced. And if there's not fruit, then what's that tell you? It's in one of the other three categories. But there will be varying levels of fruit that will be produced that will one day be harvested by Christ and his holy angels. The kingdom power is what we live by. It allows us to grow in righteousness, will produce, which will produce that great harvest. So in the meantime, what does this look like? We grow in humility. We grow in joy. We grow in peace and peacemaking. Okay? Being peacemakers, that's what Jesus started with in the Sermon on the Mount. We grow in extending forgiveness. We grow in kindness and we grow in love. We grow in patience refusing to judge another person's ultimate eternal state. That's not my job. That's not your job. That's God's job. He sits on the throne. We leave it to him then. And so we live not by our power, but by the great power of the kingdom, which enables us to grow side by side with the weeds and miraculously not be snuffed out. Because if you've ever gardened before, if you let the weeds go, what typically happens? Kills what you're trying to grow there not with us, because of the power of God. Yes, the weeds certainly make things harder for us. There's no question about that. They certainly do. But praise God that we grow through a power not of our own. It is a supernatural power that will by no means fail to lead to our triumph. That leads us to our third point here. Kingdom hope recognizes the corruption of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, and third, the triumph of the kingdom. Now, I said before, there was a second way to understand these parables in a positive way, uh, with the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, which shows us the great coming triumph of the kingdom of God. Yeah, we're not going to take over things physically. We're not going to rule and reign politically over this church with, with Christendom. Whenever the church and politics become united, it's not a good thing. <clears throat> but over time... The kingdom, as we have seen since the 12 disciples, has grown to spread across the whole world, right? So that's a viable interpretation. And so that is one way to understand it. But regardless of whether or not those two parables are actually saying that, the kingdom is going to advance spiritually. How? By the church. In what way? By leading sons and daughters of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's how we advance it and move forward. We make them kingdom citizens by grace through faith in Jesus. Now, the kingdom's not here, but when it comes, they will be able to enter into it. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? 
you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, what do you got to do? You got to be born again. Otherwise, you don't get in. That's the, only, that's the only way into the kingdom. Ultimately, the kingdom is coming. It will triumph when Christ returns and sets up his glorious millennial kingdom. However, and there's no easy way to say this, so I'll just say it, but before he does that, what does this text tell us that Jesus is going to do? He's going to triumph over his enemies. He will then remove the wheat from the tares and cast the weeds into eternal fire. Verse 32, as it tells us, it says, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth due to the anguish and suffering of all those who lived striving to corrupt the kingdom of light. And finally, then on that day, the Lord's prayer will be answered. What did Jesus pray in the Lord's prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on that day, that prayer will be answered fully. It will be answered fully as Christ comes with full power, achieving full victory and triumph. When that day does come, as verse 43 says, the wheat will be collected and spared from the fire of eternal kingdom. And then what happens? We, being the wheat, will shine in the kingdom of their father. Daniel 12, he talks about this. I want to read this for us. It's three verses. He says this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen. There was a nation till that time, since there was a nation, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Anyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, this is what Jesus says in our text, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That is amazing. That's what's coming for us very soon. So very soon. This is what's ahead. Not destruction, church, everlasting life. And it comes to us not by our works, lest anyone should boast, but by the perfect work of Jesus Christ, who became corrupted upon the cross for us in order to save us from our corruption, who gave up his power for the weak so that the weak might become strong. And as we celebrated last Sunday, he triumphed over death and the grave as he rose victoriously from it. Why? So that you and I might too shine like stars for all of eternity, that we might experience new life in the kingdom of our Father. In Daniel 7, this is a couple chapters before we looked at, here's another thing he says about it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There's our Messianic title for Jesus again, right? And he came to the Ancient of Days, another title for God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And by all, that means all. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Church, are we in this place yet? Is, Jesus, is this simply talking about Jesus ruling and reigning in our hearts? No, we're not there yet. All means all. He's going to have full dominion over the entire world. That's coming so very soon. 
Christ's kingdom is coming in glory and power. And when it does, as we're about to sing in a moment, we will feast in the house of Zion. So the question I have for you, is that your hope? Do you find your hope in this truth, in the coming kingdom of Christ? Can you confidently sing, we will not be burnt by the fire, for he is the Lord our God. We will not be consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. That's our hope. And if that's not your hope, what are you waiting for? Make it your hope. Bow to King Jesus. Repent from your sins and turn to the gracious King who will by no means cast us out. Father, I thank you for this passage. How even in a difficult passage, we can glean truths that point us to the glorious hope of our coming King. Father, we just ask that as children of the kingdom, that we would live as salt and light, pointing others to the salvation, to the refuge that is found only under the wings of Jesus. Father, help us not to forget how short this life is. It's a vapor. It's here for a second, and then poof, it's gone. So, Father, we just ask that we would redeem the time, that we would produce great fruit that will one day be harvested for your glory and our good. Lord, I pray for the one here today who does not have this hope, who cannot confidently say, that's what I'm longing for, that's what I'm living for. Father, I pray that they would repent. They would turn from their idolatry of finding satisfaction in the created things and instead find their satisfaction in what they were made to find it in, which is the creator, who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to be ready, to not shrink back from your face when we see it, but to smile with joy and gratitude because the true longing of our heart has finally been fulfilled and arrived. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.